It's been a seven-week spiral for the federal liberals as the shadow of the SNC-Lavalin scandal continues to cloud over public support. How far down it will slip is yet to be seen. The one thing you can count on, the SNC-Lavalin affair will be top of mind with voters come October's federal election. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is scrambling to save his brand and support as two prominent members of his cabinet are turfed. The opposition conservatives constantly badger the liberals and in particular the prime minister going as far as trying to goad him into a lawsuit. Canadians are watching this issue, despite the ferocious effort by the Liberals to change the channel. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll chat with Canada's best-known expert on whistleblowing, Alan Cutler of Canadians for Accountability. He's also the man who blew the whistle on the Liberals' ad scam scandal, which saw hundreds of millions of dollars spent for little or no work. We'll discuss the similarities between the SNC-Lavalin affair and what he dealt with. An interesting angle on this whole affair is that it could bring Canada a whole new constitutional moment. We'll chat with Patrick Desjardins. He's a PhD in political science at York University. He's also a research associate at the Robart Center for Canadian Studies, and he penned an interesting column for policy options on constitutional conventions. And we'll be joined later in the show by Caroline Andrew, director of the Center on Governance at the University of Ottawa. Depending on where you sit on the political spectrum, you'd either think Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott were not team players by letting the cat out of the bag, or they were whistleblowers, as they iterate, speaking truth to power. Alan Cutler was the man who blew the whistle on the ad scam scandal of Jean Chrétien's liberals. He was also courted by the Tories as a star candidate in the federal election. He's now the man behind Canadians for Accountability, Canada's only national whistleblower protection organization. And Alan, do you feel Wilson-Raybould and Philpott are whistleblowers? Um, based on everything I've seen and heard, yes, I would qualify them. They may not qualify themselves as that. Everybody makes their own definition, but I would qualify them in that. And the interesting thing you made, you said team players. Um, a team player is one who is supposed to honor the team at all costs, as I understand the definitions that are going and put their own personal values aside. And these two ladies have kept their personal values and done what they believe is the proper thing to do. They have a strong sense of integrity. What similarities do you see between this this uh, scandal and, and the sponsorship scandal? Um, first off, it, the, one of the things is many people know what, what's going on. When I was um, in the middle of the sponsorship scandal, it came out that, and I could prove hundreds of people knew what Chuck Gite was doing and nobody came forward. Gumry actually mentioned that in his final report that nobody came forward. And you cannot tell me that in the liberal caucus amongst the hundred plus liberals that are there, others do not, know what's going on and what they're doing and what really bothers me is that they're using this taped conversation. It's a total red herring. It's the content of the conversation that matters, not the fact that they actually taped it without, or she taped it without telling anybody. Really? You, you feel that's not the issue? That's not the issue. I deal with whistleblowers all the time. And I've been doing that for well over 10, 15 years now. 
And the one thing I tell whistleblowers or people in that situation and abusive management, abusive situations, even if it's not whistleblowing, is to tape, but don't tell the other person. It's legal and it protects you because as soon as you tell the other person what's going on, they will change exactly what they say and how they say it. And they'll do things behind closed doors and you'll have no way of showing anybody what actually happened. You need to tape for your own self-defense. And I tell people it's not a question of is she ethically correct or not? She is. She's legally allowed. But it's for her own self-defense and own protection. And she would not have taped if she wasn't worried. From what you've seen, is this a criminal issue or a political one? Uh, at this point, I would tend to think it's political, but I don't know the law. I do know they've now challenged as to whether kicking them out of caucus was correct. But I don't know whether it's a legal issue. I, I really don't. Alan Cutler is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's the president of Canadians for Accountability. He's also the man who blew the whistle on the sponsorship scandal and joining us to talk about whistleblowing in general. And, and you know, since since you're, you're coming forward, all political parties have pledged more accountability and transparency, but have you seen them do anything to protect whistleblowers or is it just lip service? A lot of it is lip service until it affects them. Mm-hmm. It's terrible to say. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the Canadians for Accountability, we changed our name. We're now Anti-Corruption and Accountability Canada. Oh, okay. Same organization, same goals, just a more up-to-date name to reflect what we do is working on a lot of corruption and, and mm-hmm. whistleblowing. All right. But, yeah, they, in, to go back to it, um, yes, there's a lot of lip service put on. The other thing you can do, pull into this particular one is what we teach kids in school. Think about it right now. We have a huge, huge anti-bullying program across the country for kids in schools. And what do we tell them? That when you see somebody being picked on, you are to jump in and help them. You're not just to stand by and watch what happens. So we we tell them as kids, and we show them how they should do it as adults. And yet uh, we're in this situation because nobody's following that. But but the kids and the parents who watch now know when you become an adult, forget about everything you learn in school. What do you think it will, it will take to gain more protection for whistleblowers? Uh, it's not just the legislation. It's also the ability to speak out. Things Things are changing. We are speaking out more, and whistleblowers are better protected uh not legally, but they're better protected by the fact they have a, a people to go to and resources to actually help them. But it still is a long way to go. I actually just finished an article and I said, I thought we had been gaining ground based on everything over the last 10 years I'd seen, I'd heard, I believed in, and then the liberal situation just blew that out of the water. And as far as I'm concerned, we've we've lost 10 years of work. How do you get that work back? Just keep fighting for it. And, And you have two ladies who have proven 
people have a conscience and people have integrity and they can stand their ground when everything is coming at them. So it can be done, but you have to have courage of your convictions. And too few people still do not have it. How do you see this scandal playing out? From my own way, I don't think they'll get back in cabinet, if I had to guess. But I would hope that the public looks and they say, what type of government do we want? And what type of government do we want to represent our our children to grow up into? Keep in mind, if you allow this to go on with no repercussions, it's going to get worse. And you need to keep pushing back always to try and keep things improving. And if we, I, I say, what type of world do I want my grandchildren to live in? I want them to live in a world where they don't get this type of situation happening as adults. Alan, I want to thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Ed. It's always a pleasure. Alan Cutler is the president of Anti-Corruption and Accountability Canada, formerly Canadians for Accountability. He's also known as the person who revealed the sponsorship scandal. The current SNC-Lavalin affair has enveloped Parliament Hill and politicos from coast to coast. Recent polls show Canadians want to hear more about the issue, and they are paying attention and could have an even bigger impact on Canada other than just in politics. Patrick Desjardins is completing a Ph.D. in political science at York University. He's also a research associate at the Robart Centre for Canadian Studies. And he joins us to talk about his column for policy options, about how this could bring us our next constitutional moment. And Patrick, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you feel this could bring Canada its next constitutional moment. How so? Well, in the article I wrote, I suggested that at least in some of the superficial aspects uh, with the the uh, House of Commi- uh, House of uh, Commons Justice Committee uh, testimony and, and and the mediatization of the event seemed a little bit out of uh, out of the, the norm in terms of uh, Canadian political crises. Uh, but I guess subsequently uh, the Liberals had appointed uh, Anne McClellan to look into whether or not the office of the uh, Attorney General should be um, split from that of the Minister of Justice. And from your perspective, is that something that uh, Canada should be looking at? Well, in terms of uh, splitting the uh, office of the minister, uh, excuse me, the attorney general from that of the minister of justice, uh, I think if we just go back to the beginning with the, what's happening with the SNC affair, it seems to me there's two separate issues. There's whether or not you believe um, SNC should be uh, accorded a remediation agreement, and there's that policy question, which I think is quite different from um, the matter of how the government went about pursuing its preferred policy. Uh, and it seems to me in the way the media, the media has sort of triangulated this debate, so to speak, lumping them all in uh, together as, as one issue. I see the issues um, a little bit separately. I think you can be for or against SNC getting the agreement, and you can be for or against how the government went about doing things. Now, when we're talking about, when I'm raising the issue of whether or not there's a um, this um, amounts to a new constitutional moment. I'm talking about in terms of um, the, the the government side 
of things. It seems to me the norm in um, Canadian politics has been um, a little bit of a behind-the-scenes uh, secretive approach to cabinet, and um, and I personally don't think that uh, the uh, anything uh, the Liberals in, in going about doing this did anything uh, criminal. And uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould said that in her uh, testimony uh, as well. Um, so what, what I see as new here is uh, the mediatization of it, and specifically the call that this represents um, something akin to the Saturday night massacre, uh, which um, is referring to uh, Nixon in the 70s, who uh, during the Watergate investigations pressured his attorney generals to fire the lead investigator, and I guess he blew through two attorney generals uh, in doing so. Now, what makes what raises a bit of uh, bells for me in, in making that is, claim is that it seems to me that um, we don't quite have the same structure and system of accountability in our Canadian system. So then to insist, as uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould done, on, 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 a, on a really radical um, uh, autonomy for the role of the Attorney General, that seems to me to be um, a, potentially outside of the uh, constitutional norm uh, we've seen in, in, in Canada and in, and in Westminster-style systems more broadly. So that's the kind of um, area in which I, I see a potential for uh, 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 new constitutional uh, questions going forward. Uh, if that's ultimately where this leads, but I'm not necessarily sure that's where it's going. You know, this is uh, brought reference to the Shaw Cross Doctrine, and for those unfamiliar, what is it, and how does it apply here? The Shaw Cross Doctrine refers to um, Hartley Shaw Cross. Hartley Shaw Cross was the Attorney General for the United Kingdom during the um, uh, Nuremberg trials after the war. And uh, Shawcross led the UK uh, government's um, uh, prosecution against the uh, Germany and the uh, Nazis. And uh, basically, he was the most eloquent of the uh, attorney generals of the countries represented, uh, I believe, the Soviet Union, the United States. Uh, he was considered uh, the most uh, um, eloquent and, and forward in terms of his approach to the Nazis. And his whole um, strategy was based around the idea that uh, the Nazis infringed international law. And so this is when you have this is where you start to see uh, international law being introduced as a kind of uh, political uh, approach uh, to uh, dealing with other countries. And this is where you also see um, this um, um, collapsing of law and politics, where on the one hand, the law is being presented as this kind of neutral arbiter. But this is being done simultaneously for political reasons, political reasons here being the, uh, and don't get me wrong, I think it's totally justified, but the political reason being the persecution of the Nazis. So when uh, he was questioned on his um, strategy uh, in the House of Commons in the United Kingdom, his question on how he sees the role of the Attorney General, uh, Shawcross was, 
And uh, so this is where the, the, na- the namesake of the doctrine comes in. He basically said that um, it's the, I can quote it in block here, it's a little bit long, but Shawcross says, I think the true doctrine of the Attorney General is that in deciding whether or not to authorize prosecution, uh, to acquaint himself with all the relevant facts, including, for instance, the effect which the prosecution, successful or unsuccessful as the case may be, would have upon public morale and order. And then he continues, um, the responsibility for the eventual decision rests with the Attorney General and he is not to be put and is not put under pressure by his colleagues in the matter. And interestingly, though, he also notes that um, in order to inform himself, the Attorney General may, although I do not uh, think he is obliged to, consult with any of his colleagues in the government. And indeed, as Lord Simon once said, he would be, uh, he would in some cases be a fool if he did not. So Shawcross was a bit of a... Um, uh, would go on to be actually, interestingly, uh, Clement Attlee, who was the Prime Minister of uh, the UK at the time, um, there was a bit of a turnover in the Parliament, and then he uh, moved Shawcross from the position of the Attorney General to the President of the Treasury Board in the UK. Uh, which And Shawcross had a, was a bit of an eccentric, ultimately. He passed away about I think 10, 15 years ago, he had some pretensions to the leadership of the Labour Party, uh, and he um, he ultimately failed uh, in, in in gaining the leadership. But he he was considered a kind of uh, a bit flamboyant and eccentric in his views and his an approach to things, and he eventually uh, left the government. Uh, I'm not quite sure when, but he did not become prime minister. The interesting thing, though, is, of course, when it's being referenced in the Canadian case, the media has been quick to point out the the second part of that, which is the attorney general is not to be put under pressure. Of course, Shawcross himself says in Parliament that uh, um, the the person, uh, the attorney general, needs to uh, (laughs) make some effort to acquaint themselves with the policy issues. Uh, uh, regarding the prosecution, the policy issues and consequences. Uh, now, it's interesting, too, in a Canadian case, the way this has been brought up uh, with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and uh, the Liberals, is that um, even Shawcross, the namesake of the doctrine, he was moved from the position of the Attorney General. That's what's so interesting, too, is that uh, being appointed Attorney General is not a job for life. Uh, <laughs> you're not, not only that, there's the expectation that uh, in the Westminster system, the person who occupies the post of the Attorney General be uh, an elected uh, uh, member of the House of Commons. Um, so I could go into that more if you like, but I, I think there's um, that aspect hasn't always been um, touched upon in, in the media, I find. Patrick Desjardins is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's uh, completing his PhD in political science at York University, also a research associate of the Robart Centre for Canadian Studies, and penned an interesting column in Policy Options, uh, talking about how the SNC-Lavalin situation could be our next constitutional moment. Now, to me, me, Patrick, it seems this is all about interpretation when you look at the Shawcross Doctrine, because, you know, one reads it one way, Somebody else reads it the other way, and and you know you're back to square one. Uh, yes and no. There are limits to interpretation, uh, and there are uh, reasonable uh, differences of opinion, of, uh, of um, 
interpretation that can be drawn from the the, the doctrine. Uh, constitutional scholars use a concept called abeyances to describe these things, and an abeyance is basically you have uh, two um, different interpretations of the same thing, and they're diametrically opposed interpretations. Um, and in the Shawcross Doctrine, I think we do have uh, an instance of an abeyance in, in that sense. We've had many instances of abeyances in in Canadian uh, politics. One of the biggest is the one uh, between um, uh, is Quebec's interpretation of the Constitution and um, for lack of a better term, English-speaking Canada's uh, right. interpretation of the Constitution. Um, that being said, abeyances uh, don't mean the collapse of the constitutional system. Oftentimes, uh, they are necessary for the uh, constitutional system to uh, move forward. And in this case, what seems to be developing is is... is we seem to be trying to, through the dark, figure out how to move forward uh, from this uh, issue. So it could be going forward that a, const- a convention has been established where if the, um, based on what's transpired here, where that uh, if the Attorney General challenges the Prime Minister on a matter of principle, is the convention going forward that uh, the Prime Minister will... Uh, uh, necessarily uh, kick this person out of caucus. Uh, I'm not sure that it's, it, this convention will be so congealed the way the liberals have have, have dealt um, have dealt with this uh, with this issue. But I think the, the bigger question from an institutional configuration perspective is whether or not uh, the offices should be split. The mm-hmm. Minister of Justice and the and the uh, attorney general. I'm not sure that separating the offices uh, necessarily or inherently leads to to better political or policy outcomes. In the United Kingdom, for instance, where uh, this is the the case, the attorney general, uh, the attorney general is still subordinate uh, to the equivalent of the Minister of Justice in the United Kingdom. And, you know, the attorney general and the Minister of Justice both know that uh, they're also subordinate to the, the prime minister. Uh, the prime minister is the minister of other ministers, basically. So when they're talking about... Uh, the clerk of the Privy Council, in this case, uh, Michael Wernick, who is both the is th- three things: the um, the secretary of the Privy Council on the one hand, the top civil servant uh, 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 on the other hand, and the deputy minister to the prime minister. Now, in his capacity as uh, deputy minister to the prime minister, which I assume that was the context in which he was uh, that that phone call that was recorded. Uh, I assume that was the context in which he was undertaking his, his duties. I could be wrong, but that's what I would assume was the premise of the phone call as the deputy minister 
uh, of the prime minister to get the pulse of what the other ministers, where they stand on the issues that are of importance to the, the government. Um, you have that the, 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 the fact that that person wears so-called three hats. The attorney general wears one, two hats. We have a fusion of powers uh, government. I think that when it comes to separating these things becomes extremely complicated because of the fundamental um, convention of responsible government, where the assumption is that for people like on the civil service side, like the clerk to um, undertake their responsibilities, they uh, do so on the premise that there's a clear majority in the House of Commons uh, that uh, that they can take their instructions from. Um, Jody Wilson-Raybould was an elected member of Parliament. Um, if we separate the two offices, does that mean that um, the Attorney General going forward won't be an elected member of Parliament? Is that what Canadians feel comfortable with, really? I, I'm not so sure. In the American case, they're not uh, the the attorney general is not an elected member of congress it's uh, someone that's basically the choice of the president and is accountable clearly and uh, directly to the president um so i'm not uh, i'm not sure that uh, there's much to be gained by separating the two uh, offices uh but uh, it also remains to be seen at how far uh, the former attorney general wants to to push this issue. Um, I, I, she could probably make a case if, if uh, she wanted to, but uh, that that hasn't uh, come forward as far as I'm aware. Patrick, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. Patrick Desjardins is completing a PhD in political science at York University. The ongoing saga of the SNC-Lavalin affair comes as we hit the silly season in Canadian politics, which is amplified in an election year. There are a number of issues that have surfaced. A possible defamation lawsuit, the revival of the Reform Act, and whether the Liberals broke the letter of the law. To get some more perspective on these issues, I am pleased to be joined by Caroline Andrew, Director of the Centre of Governance at the University of Ottawa in Caroline, does this issue appear to be dying down to you, or is this like an onion where you continue to unwrap the layers? I think it's a bit more like an onion, but because uh, I, I think there are a number of layers that still have to be uncovered, if you want. And it is a complicated question, because it's, on one hand, uh, Lavalin is one of the symbols of modern Quebec, and um on the other hand, it's obvious that there's incredible corruption, um, but that will play out, I think, uh, differently in the Quebec, or uh, the federal election, and uh, the ramifications for Quebec, uh, uh, the policies of the Quebec government at the present, and the policies, of course, at the Ontario government, too. So I think it'll play out as a sort of a in part a left-right symbol, but complicated by the special relationship that Quebecers have had to Lavalin. You know, there, there's been an awful lot of talk about the SNC-Lavalin and, and then uh, Wilson-Raybould and Phil Pot being bumped out of, out of cabinet as being a feminist issue. Do you, do you see this as a feminist issue at all? 
Yeah, I think I do. I've been following it on Par Air, which is one of the um, feminist uh, sort of um, online discussion groups. And you can see that there's been a lot of discussion about this. And it one of the factors that comes out all the time is, yes, but do you want the conservatives? So I think it is seen as, yes, uh, there were mistakes made. There were, um, it obviously poses a problem for some of the things that the Trudeau government wanted to do in terms of the, um, in terms of indigenous issues in Canada. And that's, it's certainly complicated that one. But I think it also plays out as a feminist issue and which, resonates around, but do you want the conservatives? Or isn't uh, the thought of having what's-his-name as our uh, prime minister uh, is not a happy thought. So I think it will play out as both uh, Quebec uh, federal and uh, very much uh, women's issue on right and left. See, I didn't really see it as a feminist issue. Now, Jody Wilson-Raybould, obviously a woman, but I think she got bumped out, bumped out of cabinet, and you know, despite her position as the attorney general, uh, not because she was a woman, because according to the prime minister, they obviously didn't uh, follow along with what they wanted to do. If a, if a man is the, the 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 attorney general and does a similar thing, we don't call that you know obviously a, a gender issue. No, but I think the fact, uh, no, we wouldn't call it a gender issue. Well, except we might say that uh, uh, we might talk about white men power, but I think Mm -hmm. it is become a feminist issue simply because those two people are very prominent women. And uh, and also, uh, as I said, it also comes out as an indigenous issue. But I think it really plays out as... Um, a sort of a fight between the federal government trying to um, not cover it up, but trying to make less of it, and the uh, with both Ontario and Quebec uh, trying to make more of it as a as an upcoming issue in the in the federal election. But as we all know, uh, provincial politics, especially those not only of Ontario and Quebec, but particularly Ontario and Quebec, always play in on the federal scene when there's an election. Well, you've got so many people there. You know, obviously it's all about seats and votes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the Reform Act is, is once again being being talked about in this issue, Michael Chong's private member's bill. Uh, have the Liberals broken the law by not holding that vote on which sections of the Reform Act would apply to them? I don't think they've broken the law, but I, I, I'm absolute. I'm not totally clear on that. I've been following it on different social media, but I can't quite uh, understand whether they've broken the law or whether they're um, whether they can do it if they want to, but they will pay the political price by doing it. But that I'm not sure of. It's that's certainly how it seems to come out and. The social media I've been watching. Mm. Do you ever see uh, Wilson Raybould or uh, Phil Pot uh, rejoining the Liberal Party or uh, getting back into caucus? Um, 
I think saddles be a while, uh, though I think they certainly still, I think, see themselves as much more liberals than anything else. They're not, uh, I don't think either of them is a sort of a traditional NDP candidate. They are much more uh, liberals. And so I think that they um, may want to, but I think that'll take a bit of time because, of course, lots of other members of the caucus are have been really irritated by that and may not want to have them come back right away. Now, uh, in, in the case of Jane Philpott, her, her entire riding association up and just quit because they obviously are not going to be able to support her in the next coming election. Did the Liberals sort of misread the way Canadians, and in particular these riding associations, were going to, were going to take uh, this whole situation? Well, Canadians have been um, Canadians have been slow to join sort of um, the importance of if you want clean politics. I mean, we all remember the famous saying of Sir John A. Macdonald: "Send another ten thousand to to get money for his campaign." And it it certainly was only when René Lévesque uh, was in government that they started to clean up the election laws in Canada. So we've we've got a, a sort of a slow development in Canada about feelings of uh, what's what's legitimate and what's... Uh, but I think that plays in, again, as I was saying, in the case of Quebec, on the symbolic importance of Lavalin. So people are wondering whether they should... Uh, they should be really concerned about this, or whether the important symbol of Lavalin will will cause people to either um, vote for the Liberals despite of it, maybe vote for the NDP, or maybe just abstain and just not vote. So we'll see that in the in the in the rate of voting in the federal mm-hmm. election. Can you recall uh, a similar sort of uh, situation to this that previous governments have had to deal with? Well, I think there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of occasions where governments have had to think about uh, do we do we cover up the scandal or do we uh, do we try and come forward about it more clearly? Um, and so I think there's been, I mean, there's a number of cases in, in Canada, as I say, going back far, where people have had to make up their mind whether they um, support somebody who has been corrupt or whether they abstain or whatever they do. But I think uh, people, obviously, when there's a federal election that seems to be an important one, as this one, I think, will be, uh, people are a little worried about what they should personally do. But if the race looks close, which it would seem to look very close at the moment, people may sort of say, okay, well, the less bad of the two evils is uh, is maybe voting for the Liberals or, or voting 
or not voting or whatever. So I think there are a lot of cases. And as I said, I don't think Canadians have not been um, first of the pack to worry about election uh the con- uh, all the rights and of d- doing a good election we've been slow to to see the importance of being absolutely clear on these questions caroline i want to thank you for joining us it's always a pleasure to talk to you ed Caroline Andrew is the director of the Center on Governance at University of Ottawa. I want to thank her for joining us today. As well, I'd like to thank Patrick Desjardins, who's completing a Ph.D. in political science at York University. He's also a research associate at the Robards Center for Canadian Studies. And Alan Cutler, the president of Anti-Corruption and Accountability Canada, formerly Canadians for Accountability. The scandal continues to weigh heavy on the Liberals and their prospects in the October election, whether it does them in is yet to be seen. I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand.